Please turn with me in your Bibles to the first chapter of the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 9. Joshua 1, verses 1 through 9, please give your attention to God's word. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land I swore, that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In the last couple of years, there's been a lot of discussion among thoughtful Christians about a popular book that came out a few years ago called The Benedict Option. It's written by a conservative political and cultural commentator named Rod Dreher. Mr. Dreher was raised Methodist and then converted to Catholicism and then eventually made his way into the Orthodox Church. One of my favorite editorial writers, columnist David Brooks, calls this book, The Benedict Option, the most discussed and most important religious book of the decade. I'm not sure that I would agree with that assessment, but it is certainly a significant conversation that has come about as a result of its popularity. The book's title refers to a person named Benedict of Nursia, who lived about 450 years after Christ. 450 years after Christ, of course, was the time of the decline of the Roman Empire. And we know from history that the Roman Empire was full of moral depravity and disorganization and fighting and infighting among the leaders of the empire. And Benedict saw what effect it had been Uh, officially a Christian culture in the Roman Empire, but it had strayed far from that. It had gone back into idolatry and immorality. It was a very dark period in human history and, uh, and certainly in the empire's history. And so Benedict's solution 
for the church, what he advocated for the church was that Christians kind of pull away from this dark and depraved culture to protect the church, to protect the doctrine of the church, to make sure that the coming generations of the church would be well-trained in the faith and practices of Christianity so that the church can be recognized as something different than the world and therefore can go back to the world, present to it an example of godliness and righteousness and serve the world, serve the, the people around them, the communities around them, and therefore have an impact on the world. Of course, Benedict, what we came to know as Benedictine monasteries came from that movement. As Benedict went around that part of the empire establishing small communities of believers that lived in a community together and then served the communities around it. What Dreher is saying in the book is that we should consider something like that strategy today in a culture that is very similar to the culture at the end of the Roman Empire. As many around us have been saying, we live in a post-Christian culture, a culture that now is very antagonistic to the faith and the practice of Christianity. And so what Dreyer is saying is, you know, he's basically looking at what we've been doing for the past few decades in that kind of a culture and saying it's not working. The strategy we've been using is to try to take over the broader culture by participating in it and influencing it from within, by entering in fully to the culture of politics, into the culture of education and arts and entertainment, and try to be salt and light and bring influence. But he says the result of that strategy has been more like the church becoming like the world, that we've become more political, we've become more materialistic, we've become worldly in our thinking and We've become very entertainment-oriented. And so that's why he's saying we need to think about stepping apart from culture so that we can still be an influence to the culture. And so in in short, to quote him, his idea is to secede, not succeed, secede culturally from the mainstream. It would involve, in a Benedictine way, setting up communities of believers that are committed to biblical discipleship, doctrinal training, biblical worship, and serving one another and serving the world. Separating in order to preserve our faith and practice so that we can serve and be an example to a dying culture that has rejected Christ. Kind of sounds in some way, and I think in our minds in this area, we tend to go to the Amish culture, what they did. But their separation was to avoid contact with the world in many ways and to retain traditions that aren't necessarily biblical and to become in some ways legalistic. His idea is more to retain a biblical faith and community that could go back into the community like the monasteries did in their early better days, go back into the community to serve and to love and to be a great influence in the community. I am not advocating for what Rod Dreher is advocating for. I'm just bringing it up as an interesting conversation. I think there's some huge grains of truth in what he's talking about, is that in our efforts in recent days to engage a very dark culture, the culture has had a bigger influence on the church than the church has had upon the culture. I think that's something we need to recognize and deal with. 
The Benedictine option is causing people to rethink, Christians to rethink what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. And I think it's an important conversation to have. We establish many of the strategies that we use in ministry and for cultural engagement. We established those strategies during a time when our culture was much more open to what we were saying, much more like the culture of the church than it is now. And so we do have to take, without compromising our biblical principles, we always have to be assessing our strategies and reassessing our strategies to say, are we interacting with the world in the best way? I give all this as background to a study that we're beginning this morning. Over the next couple of months, next few months, we'll be looking at the book of Joshua. On the surface, this book of the Bible would seem to have very little light to shed upon the church today about how to have an influence on a dark and pagan culture. As a matter of fact, if we were to employ the methods of of cultural engagement that Joshua and the armies of Israel used, we would actually fulfill the worst fears of the culture around us. There's this irrational fear among many among whom we live, that somehow we're going to take up arms and try to establish the kingdom of God by the power of the sword and kill all the infidels. But the kingdom of God doesn't look like it did in the days of Joshua. If we recognize the differences in the context of redemptive history and the differences in the callings between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church, we will see that we are still called to cultural engagement. We are still called to take the culture, so to speak, for Christ. We are still called to that, but we do it in a very different way. But the principles underlying our mission, if you take away these, these differences between where they were in redemptive history and where we are in redemptive history, The principles are amazingly the same. How should the church fulfill its mission? What is our mission and how should we fulfill it? In the Old Testament, God established a nation, a political entity, that was intended to foreshadow the kingdom of God. Old Testament Israel was not the kingdom of God. It was a picture of the coming kingdom of God. It's important to recognize that. It was to be a righteous society where God is king and people lived under the authority and according to the word of God the king to form a righteous society that would be a witness to the nations, a light on the hill, so to speak. But when Jesus Christ arrived, he announced, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Christ came the first time to establish the kingdom, to establish it by dying on the cross for our sins, to establish it by raising from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the devil. And he empowered the kingdom of God by sending the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to dwell within the church. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Not like the Old Testament theocracy of Israel. It's not going to be like that. 
Nor will they say, he said, look, here it is, or there. It will not be an earthly entity, an organization, a, a political entity in this world. You will not be able to say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God is here, but it is a spiritual kingdom. And it is seen in the hearts and lives and love and service of the church of Jesus Christ. The church is the kingdom of God made visible in this fallen world. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. He reigns over every square centimeter on this planet. But his reign only becomes visible when his people who are called by his grace and transformed by his spirit live in submission to his reign, live with him as Lord over all of life, and show his kingdom to a world that is living in rebellion. And so the kingdom of God, in a very real sense, is here. It's a spiritual entity. It is the church. It is the visible entity that we see in the church. But it is still coming. Because there is still much rebellion against Christ. And the church's influence is still spreading to the four corners of the earth. And so Jesus taught us to pray. In the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I believe that studying the book of Joshua can help us to understand what we're asking for when we pray that. I don't think Christians in general think very deeply about what they're asking for when they say, your kingdom come. What are we asking for? How does this kingdom come? What do we want to see happen? Well, Joshua will help us. In verses 1 and 2, we see that the book begins at a time of crisis and uncertainty among God's people. The Lord begins the book of Joshua by speaking to Joshua saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Moses, one of the greatest leaders in the history of God's people, the one who had led by God's grace, had led them out of slavery in Egypt, who had defeated Pharaoh and his armies by the power of the Lord, the one who received God's law on Mount Sinai, the one who had led them faithfully through the wilderness, the one who spoke to God face to face, as one speaks to a friend, according to scripture, they had lost Moses right on the doorstep of the promised land. I remember when I was a child, all the adults in my life talked all the time about where they were, what was going on, their deep, painful memories of when President Kennedy was assassinated. Because it was such an earth-shattering event. We live in such a peaceful country that to have our president assassinated was unsettling to, to everybody. And it's amazing to me what a scar that left on my parents' generation. A time when there was uncertainty about leadership. When there's uncertainty about leadership, there's uncertainty about the future. We are blessed to live in a very unusual country where a peaceful transfer of authority, a peaceful transfer of power, is what we expect. That doesn't happen in most nations in history. Most nations in history have been led by kings and queens and dictators, and when the king or queen or dictator dies, there is incredible uncertainty. 
because the new leader would bring great change, maybe for better, more often for worse. And that's the situation. Moses is gone. There had to be that same deep sense of being fearful and unsettled throughout the people of Israel. And into that, the real king of Israel speaks. See, that's why, even more so than American government, the the people of Israel had an assurance that there could be a peaceful transition of authority because the next leader would be chosen by God in this era of redemptive history. God speaks, the one true God, and he tells the people, here is the leader whom I have chosen. His name is Joshua. He is called here Moses' assistant. That's actually putting it uh, in, in, in the most minimalist way possible because Joshua was, was Moses' right-hand man. He was with him from the time he was a young man through all of Moses' leadership experience. He was the one who would go into the tent of meeting with Moses when he met, went to meet with the Lord. Joshua went to Mount Sinai, to the top of Mount Sinai, not to the very top, but he went up the mountain with Moses when he went up to receive the law. Joshua became Moses' top general, top military leader in the battles that they fought during their time in the wilderness. Joshua is a picture. Just like Israel was a picture of the coming kingdom, this Joshua would be a picture of the one who leads us today. As Owen said, Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. The Lord is our salvation. And so as we look to our Joshua, we will see very similar principles that are given here in the call of Joshua to lead Israel. The first principle is that this kingdom will come by God's promise. This kingdom is going to come by God's promise. If you were to take some time, and I would recommend you do this over the next week or so, take some time to read through the book of Joshua as we prepare to go through these studies, you know, when you think of it, you think of Joshua as a military book, as a, as a record of military conquest, as Israel comes and drives the Canaanites out of the land and take possession of the land. You think it's going to be a big, exciting, kind of World War II type military story. It's not. Matter of fact, there's only a few chapters that talk about the conquests. Percentage-wise, we're actually going to struggle with this book. As Owen and I go preaching through the book, we're going to struggle with this a bit because Long sections in Joshua are relatively boring if you just read them for entertainment's sake because there's long passages that talk about the allotment of the land, how the tribes and the families all received the land that was promised. Because, you see, the book of Joshua isn't about military conquest. The book of Joshua is about the faithfulness of God to his promises. And this book is about a promise, a promise that was made 600 years earlier to Abraham that we read earlier in the service, that God chose Abraham, a pagan man in a pagan nation, called him by his sovereign grace out of that darkness and said, I am going to make of you a great nation and I am going to place your great nation in a great land and that great nation in that great land living under my authority is going to be a great blessing to all nations. That's what the book of Joshua is about. The people of God 
We're standing on the shore of the Jordan River looking over into this promised land. The dimensions that are given of the land here, as you see in verse 4, those dimensions are the same dimensions that were given in the promise to Abraham. What had been promised, 600 years earlier, think how long the people of Israel had lived according to this promise. But here they were about to step into the land and to take and to see as a reality what had been promised. Remember, if you know the history of the wilderness wanderings of Israel, remember the only reason that Joshua is standing where he is today. Joshua and Caleb were the only two from a generation that wandered in the wilderness who didn't die under God's judgment for their lack of faith. And it was because Joshua believed in the promise given to Abraham. Joshua believed. Remember that Moses sent 12 spies into the land a generation earlier. They could have come into the land a generation earlier. Moses sent 12 spies Only Caleb and Joshua came back saying, we can do this. The other ten spies said, these people, they're giants in the land. They have big fortified cities. They said, we seem like, we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seem to them. We can't do it. But Joshua said, no, God promised. And God is faithful to his promises. If we trust him, we can do this. That's why Joshua survived that generation that came under God's judgment. And now he stands before the next generation ready to lead them into the promised land. And what a confidence booster God gives to Joshua. This is what he says to him. Verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Talk about a promise to give you an extra jolt of confidence and And energy as you take on the mission that God has given you, this land already belongs to you. Everywhere you're going to step, you're going to be feeling like you're invading foreign territory, but this land belongs to you. Everywhere your foot steps, it already belongs to you. I've given it to you. What a promise. God, now we're going to struggle with it. We'll work this through as we work through Joshua. The world, you know, whatever they know the book of Joshua is offensive to them. The idea that a foreign nation could come and displace a settled nation or a group of nations and take over their land by bloodshed. We'll we'll wrestle through that. But let me just start with a principle here. First of all, God owns the universe. God spoke the universe into existence. God owns the whole planet. God owns the Middle East. God owns Palestine. God created the Israelites, and God created the Canaanites. And all men are responsible to serve their creator, to know their creator, and to serve their creator. And God, who had created the Canaanites, was their ultimate judge. And they had rejected their true God, they had served false gods, they had lived in wickedness and rebellion, And their cup of iniquity was full. Remember, that was one reason there was such a delay between the promise that was given to Abraham and Joshua entering the land with the people of Israel was because the cup of iniquity of the Canaanites was not full. That's what he had said earlier. But now it was. And God is coming in judgment. And that's what's unique about this period of redemptive history is that God chose to use his people Israel to bring judgment upon these Canaanites. 
He could have done it by any, any various different kinds of ways. He could have done it through natu- you know, natural tragedies, through natural disasters, but no, he uses his people to bring judgment. We'll, we'll work with that as we work through the book of Joshua because it's a difficult concept. But understand that these people were under God's judgment and he is basically sending Joshua and the Israelites to evict them from the land. But the important point here is that the land already belonged to the Israelites because God had given it to them. It was their land. The Canaanites, in the eyes of God, were squatters. They had no rights to the land where they inhabited. There's been a lot of blood spilt in the Middle East for hundreds and hundreds of years over the very question of who owns that land that we're talking about. Arguments even today. So let me be clear, lest I be misunderstood. What the Bible is talking about here only addresses who that land belonged to 3,000 years ago. Not today. The questions of who the land belonged to is is an issue that was dealt with 3,000 years ago. As we talked about, that was only a picture of the coming kingdom. But in Joshua's day, he knew that even before he stepped across the Jordan River, that the land already belonged to him and to Israel. The Old Testament Israel was a picture, a shadow of the kingdom of God. The New Testament church is the spiritual kingdom of God that is expanding through the entire earth as we speak. And we still wait for the new heavens and the new earth where the kingdom will come in all of its fullness, where Christ will reign in fullness, all wickedness, all rebellion will be put away. That day is coming. I think the truth that we apply to us, how does this apply to us? We're not fighting for land in the Middle East today. We're not picking up the sword. And how does this apply to us? That there was a promise of a, of a place where the Lord's king will reign and God's people will serve him. That's that spiritual kingdom of the church that's spreading throughout the entire world. But underlying it is this understanding that Christ is coming again and the new heavens and the new earth will be established and it will, because it belongs to Christ, will also belong to us. That's the inheritance that we sing about, that we talk about. An important part of that inheritance is the new heavens and the new earth. So everywhere where the sole of our feet steps already belongs to Christ and because we're in Christ, it belongs to us. We have this tendency to think of our lives and the world around us as us versus them, and they're the ones who control everything, and we're this poor little beaten down nonprofit organization that can't get anything done. You know, we have this minimalist view of the role of the church and the work of the kingdom. Everywhere with the sole of your foot steps, it already belongs to you. The meek shall inherit the earth. That's what Jesus promised. He is coming again. Now, again, we're not primarily talking about gaining territory. We're talking about, in this era, gaining souls for Christ. But as people become submissive to the reign of Christ and submissive to his lordship, we begin to live out what is ultimately promised, that the entire universe will be filled with the worship of Christ and service to Christ and obedience to Christ. That's what we're working towards. We live by promise. We should live with the confidence that Joshua was given. 
that everywhere where the sole of our foot treads, it already belongs to Christ, and it is our inheritance in him. The second truth of the kingdom that we learn from Joshua, and particularly here in the calling of Joshua, is that the kingdom comes by God's presence. That the presence of God spreading through the, through the world, through the people of God, the spirit of Christ dwelling within them, that's how the kingdom spreads to the world. The Bible talks about God's presence in two ways. First of all, his omnipresence. God is present everywhere. There's no place where God is not present. But there's another sense in which the Bible talks about the presence of God in terms of his favorable presence. God's favorable presence is not everywhere. To illustrate, there is within God's omnipresence, his presence everywhere, there is his presence of blessing and his presence of cursing. His presence of blessing, in its greatest extent, is in heaven itself, where he is favorably present, and those who dwell with him there are under his favorable presence. But on earth, his favorable presence is among his people, those whom he's called to himself. He is favorably present there. He is not present with everybody in that way. But there's also God's presence of cursing. God is present in hell, but only in in his justice and his wrath against all that is wicked. And so even though we talk of hell as being a place where God isn't present, we mean he's not there in a favorable way. He's there in executing his wrath and judgment. On earth, that place of curse is the world, what the Bible talks about, the world, apart from the church. So you've got the place of blessing, the church, and you've got the world where You have this presence of cursing. Well, in verses 5 and 9, twice the Lord reminds Joshua of his favorable presence with him, his presence of blessing with him and the people. He says, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Verse 9, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What an incredible promise given to God's people. I will be with you in my favorable presence wherever you go. Great leaders are going to come and go. Moses's will be raised up, but Moses's will go. Joshua's will be raised up, but Joshua's will go. But the only important thing is do we have the presence of God with us? The strength and the courage that we have in our mission today, just as in Joshua's day, is based in God's presence with us. The assurance that he is for us, that he is with us, that he's on our side. When when Joshua refuted the testimony of the other ten spies who said, we can't take the land, they're too big, they're too strong, Listen to what he said in Numbers 14.9. He says, Do not fear the people of the land. Their protection is removed from them. They are under God's curse, under God's judgment. Their protection is removed from them, he said. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. You see how this understanding, not only of God's promise, but God's favorable presence, his presence of blessing with his people, was what gave Joshua the confidence to resist the pessimism and the defeatism of his fellow spies and say, no, we can do this no matter what it may look like on the surface. 
But that raises the question, doesn't it? How can we be sure that God is on our side? I am a Bob Dylan fan, love Bob Dylan's music, and even before he made a profession of faith in Christ in the late 70s, back 15 years earlier, he wrote a song called With God on Our Side. That's not a Christian song. That's written from his pre-Christian perspective. But he was making a legitimate point in that song, if you're aware of the lyrics. Basically, it's, it's a complaint about how all societies tend to claim that God is on their side, especially when they go to war. And he's basically challenging that assumption. Who can claim that God is on their side? Scripture was written to tell us how we can know on whose side God is. The gospel is the only answer to that question. We know in fullness what Joshua only saw in the shadows. Paul spells out the source of this confidence that God is on our side. It's really what the book of Romans is about. Chapters 1 through 7 is about the gospel, about how Christ was sent, that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, became man, dwelt among us, lived a life of obedience, went to the cross, and there on the cross bore the wrath of God that our sins and our rebellion and our wickedness deserved. He died for the people of God and then was raised from the dead, showing that their sins had been forgiven, that they were accepted by God in Christ, and then he ascended to his throne in the right, side, right hand of God in heaven. Based on all that being true, this is what, God, what Paul says in Romans 8. Romans 8 is about the same thing that the promise that was given to Joshua. I am with you. Romans 8 is how this is true. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the rest of Romans 8, whole middle section of Romans 8 is just expanding upon that. There is no condemnation for us. Christ has taken away the wrath. We are under his blessing. There is no more curse for us. We're only under his blessing. God is for us. What are the implications? Let me read the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He goes on to say, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is with us because of what Christ did at the cross. And those who trust in what he did at the cross can have that assurance as we work for his kingdom today that he is on our side. He is for us by grace, and we will prevail. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the work of the church. But that brings us to the last means by which the kingdom comes in this world. Those who trust in God's promise and those who trust in his favorable presence must have, all of that trust must have a transformative effect on how we live. Remember, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's the last step. It begins by believing the promise, trusting in his favorable presence, but it ends in obedience. The kingdom comes by our obedience to Christ. 
Look at verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. You see, that's what it means to make the kingdom visible. How do you make the kingdom visible? Christ reigns over all things. How do we make that visible? We do it by being obedient subjects of his kingdom. When we do the will of the king and live the way that he tells us to live, we make the kingdom visible. That's what it looks like. We show that Jesus is Lord by the way we live. And notice that as God gives this instruction to Joshua, he makes it clear that that kind of obedience begins in really knowing his word. He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. You see, there's a connection between the worldliness that is in the church in recent generations, the worldliness that has infected the church to such a great degree. There's a connection between that and biblical illiteracy in the church. People don't know the scriptures like they used to. And that leads to greater disobedience. <laughs> that's, that's not rocket science. If you don't know the word of God, how are you going to obey the word of God? And so God makes it clear to Joshua, if you're going to make my kingdom visible by living in obedience to my will, you better know my will. You better know the principles of the word. It's not going to leave your mouth. You need to meditate on it day and night so that you're careful to do according to all that is written in it. You see, and in our circles, we have a tendency to just to have an academic study of the word. We like to talk about the abstract theologies of scripture, but we don't want to talk about application. What does this look like? It's one thing to say we believe this, but what does it look like when you live it out day in and day out? We should be studying the word in depth, but it's so that we can do according to all that is written in it. Obedience for Joshua and the Israelites made their life difficult. They had to lay their lives on the line. And they had to look foolish in the eyes of the world. Remember, they look like grasshoppers in the eyes of the Canaanites that they are going to evict from the land. And they looked pretty silly as they marched around the city blowing trumpets instead of waging war. Obedience to the word often looks upside down and stupid in the eyes of the world. So many of the instructions that Christ has given to his church look counterintuitive to the world, but it is the means by which we make the kingdom visible. Our success is measured by obedience to the word of God. That's the problem. We've become so worldly in the church that we measure success the same way the world measures success, by being healthy and wealthy and having big churches and lots of programs and lots of money. and That's how the world measures success. But our ability to make the kingdom visible, the success of that mission is measured by how obedient we are to the word. And particularly the obedience to take the word to those whom the spirit of God is, is enabling to hear it and respond to it. In the book of Joshua, we're going to see that the kingdom comes by the promise of God, by the favorable presence of God, and by our obedience to the word of God. These are the themes that we're going to see repeated over and over again. You see, Jesus is our Joshua. The Lord is our salvation. Christ is our salvation. He is the one who is leading us in this mission to take the effect of the kingdom of God, which is here in our midst, 
to take it to the ends of the earth. And he has reminded us, as he gave us that great commission to go and make disciples, I am with you even to the end of the age. What incredible confidence that should give to us. We're not fighting for acreage or fortified cities. The the wars we are waging are spiritual wars for minds and hearts. Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the work of the gospel that we are called to. God has promised us that we will succeed. God has promised his presence to be with us every step of the way. We just need to be willing to be obedient to his will. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we have, uh, in our generation, become distracted by many things. And the church has taken on so many characteristics that look like the world instead of looking like the kingdom of heaven. Father, we pray that you would renew within us a sense of conviction of sin, of a desire and a passion for holiness, and a love for Christ, and a love for others, even our enemies, that would have a transformative effect upon our town, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our campus, and beyond. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God to guide us, and for the presence of the Holy Spirit to enable us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.